Connor for reading scripture today. Children are dismissed to junior church at this point. They're probably already gone. They're at a Thanksgiving feast, aren't they? Yeah. Okay. Children are already gone. If anybody thinks they're a child, they can leave now. Um, so Numbers 24, 17. We're going to look at that in a minute. It's really interesting. Um, you know, the, the way the Holy Spirit works. I heard somebody say that when they pray, coincidences happen. And I've said that recently, the last few weeks, because I like that. I, I don't believe in coincidences. I think we pray. And other people might attribute something as a coincidence, but it's, it's really by the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's not a coincidence at all. It's, it's our sovereign God. Well, today in uh, Sunday school, Karen told me that her class actually talked about Numbers 24, 17. I don't believe that's a coincidence. The Holy Spirit connects things and works things out, and it's, it's just really neat. So, anyways, we're going to go uh, talk about that passage in a few minutes. We've been talking about prophecies, and prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled in him as the Messiah. There were all these prophecies in the Old Testament, and Jesus, and all these prophecies related to the Messiah in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. He didn't miss one. He's fulfilled all these prophecies about him. Now, what does Messiah mean? Messiah means anointed one, anointed king. All through the Old Testament, they were waiting for an anointed king, a king of kings, a lord of lords who was going to, going to reign over Israel. But, you know, even before that, I think they were waiting, they were waiting for a savior who is also the Messiah. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the savior. He saves us from our sins. You know, and we talked a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago about Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy about Jesus the Messiah, which God told Eve, the first prophecy about Jesus. And actually, if you look at the, um, at the birth narratives, if you look at Genesis and you see the, the genealogies listed and the descendants, and you look how the mothers would name their sons, even in their names, it seems like they were waiting for a savior. Even in their names, they were waiting for a deliverer. Even in their names, if you look at that in Genesis chapter 5 and around there, even in their names, you can see they're waiting for somebody to save them from their sins. And they were saving, they were naming their sons names. You know, names had great significance and great meaning. Their names were names of which would mean maybe this one, maybe this son is going to be the savior. They were always waiting for a savior. So there were all these prophecies in the Old Testament about this Messiah. A number of years ago, I heard about a church that would advertise on their website, Doubters Welcome. Doubters Welcome. I like that. We don't need to be afraid to go to church or afraid to spend time with Jesus or get dismissive of our faith or get uh, discouraged in our faith because of doubts. We need to run to God and run to Jesus. You know, I hate to think that people stay away from church because they have doubts. We all have doubts from time to time. Or we all have had to overcome doubts in order to grow in our faith. About 20 years ago, I was studying the book of Revelation. I was going chapter by chapter, and I was inductively studying the book of Revelation. It was part of a discipleship training class. It's the same discipleship class that I led here last year and would lead again if anyone was interested. As part of that discipleship class, uh, you get out of it what you put into it. You're held accountable to spend time with God in daily devotions. In other words, you're held accountable to open the Bible and spend time in prayer, to eat spiritually every day. And as you form these spiritual habits, you grow spiritually. Another part of that discipleship class is every week you have to spend an hour in Bible study. Most of us never do that. And our spirituality suffers because of that. We're not eating spiritually. 
God gives us all the abilities to grow spiritually, and we neglect them. By the way, as a little aside right now, sometimes we neglect them because we over-formalize them. We think, well, I got some extra time right now, and maybe I should do some Bible reading. Oh, I really can't because I'm not in my prayer closet right now. Nope, can't open that Bible app. It's on the iPhone, but I'm not going to open it because I'm not in my traditional place where I pray every day or once a month. Nope, can't do it. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. You know, and so we don't do it. Or maybe, maybe you have extra time at lunch break or during the day and you think, I could pray. Don't have my prayer journal. Not going to do it. I'll just listen to Rush Limbaugh instead. I don't even know if he's still on the radio. But anyways, I'll just do something else. I'll go to Facebook. Because I don't have my prayer journal. I read a really good article uh, it was, uh, through Desiring God about that. Just the other day. If you've got extra time, open your Bible. Take your Bible with you or use your Bible app on your phone. God's going to bless that. It doesn't have to be an over-formalized time. Spend time in God's Word. You know, we have Facebook devotions that I, that I send out, and then I put them on podcasts now, so they're available on podcasts, right? Go through five chapters a week. It's going to be Exodus chapter 11 tomorrow, Exodus 12 the next day. It's five to ten minutes. And so, you know, I really don't know that I believe many of the excuses that people give me. Oh, I just forget to do devotions. No, you don't. Don't give me that. I don't have time. No, you don't. <laughs> there are so many opportunities to spend time in God's Word today. We have an embarrassment of resources. It's, it's just a, one of a few things. It's either the spiritual struggle within you is very strong. Don't forget that. Don't forget that spiritual struggle. It's either we don't care, we don't want to. Maybe we're not even saved, so we don't really desire to spend time with the Lord. Many times we desire devotionettes, which are for Christianettes. Kind of like sermonettes. We want baby devotions. We rely too much on our daily bread. Nothing wrong with our daily bread. But we really need to get in the word, get in the Bible, and make sure we're getting into that. And I want to help you with that. So 20 years ago, that's the end of the aside, the soliloquy or whatever it is. So back to the sermon. About 20 years ago, um, you know, I'm in this discipleship class where I was held accountable to spend time in God's word, to spend time in devotions. And I was also accountable to spend time in an in, in-depth Bible study, an hour a week. An hour a week keeps the pastor away. Just keep that in mind, okay? And so I was held accountable. So I was going through the book of Revelation. In one chapter a week, I was just studying the book of Revelation. And I'm cross-referencing. Scripture interprets Scripture. So I was cross-referencing. I'm looking at Revelation 1, one week, and Revelation 2. And as I went through the cross-references, it so encouraged my faith. Because if you look at Revelation, and you look at the cross-references, you see how many of these prophecies of Daniel, or Ezekiel, or Isaiah, are being fulfilled in Revelation. You see how Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Numbers... Genesis, all these, all these books of the Bible connect. And I also saw how all these prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. And then there's things that Jesus talked about in the Gospels, which will be fulfilled in Revelation. The Bible all connects. It all connects. It weaves together with one giant theme. And I've been talking about this in this sermon series. I like what John Ortberg writes. He says, as long as you have faith, you will have doubts. As long as you have faith, you will have doubts. And John Ortberg gives an example, okay? If I tell you I have a $20 bill in my pocket, you have to have faith to believe that, they ha that I really have a $20 bill in my pocket. You haven't seen the $20 bill. I'm just telling you there is a $20 bill. 
You have to have faith that there really is a $20 bill. Now, I want to ruin your faith. I don't usually carry cash, so this is an exception. I actually do have a $20 bill in my pocket. You don't have to have faith anymore. You can, now, unless you think it's counterfeit, which it's not. But you don't have to have faith. You can see the $20 bill. We have to have faith because Jesus is not really right here in front of us. But God encourages us in our faith through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, through all these prophecies connecting in the Bible. This is exactly what first, uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, Now we see, but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You know, right now, this side of eternity, we see a poor reflection. But someday we will be with God in heaven and we will see God face to face. And we will not need that faith anymore. Today we're going to look at another passage from the Old Testament that is prophetic about the Messiah. Connor just fabulously read it. It's, it's um, Numbers 24, 17. My theme is that God uses a pagan sorcerer to prophesy the Messiah. God uses this pagan sorcerer, this pagan false prophet, this pagan guy who probably definitely got into demonic things. Not probably, definitely. And God uses him to prophesy the Messiah. Here's an application. Realize that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. Don't ever think God can't use you. It, you know, God wants to use you. He desires to use you. God uses this pagan sorcerer, this false prophet. He can use anyone. I thought of another application as I was going over this sermon. It's not in the notes, but, you know, notice the underlying theme here. God is working behind the scenes. Israel has no idea... As we look at this passage, we are going to see that Israel had no idea that, that this pagan was supposed to curse them. Israel had no idea that this, that this pagan king wanted this pagan prophet to curse them. But God was looking out for Israel behind the scenes. Unbeknownst to Israel, God was watching over them. And God is watching over us behind the scenes as well. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what evil someone has planned, but God knows. And he's looking out for us behind the scenes. So Connor read Numbers 24, 17. We'll come back to that in a minute. But first, let me put this in context. Let me put this passage in context. And to put this in context, I'm going to summarize Numbers chapter 22 and 23 first, okay? So your homework will be to read Numbers 22 and 23 and 24. And I trust that you will all do it by next week. Context is critical, so let's look at it. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel started conquering the people of Canaan. They were conquering the land. They were getting ready to go into the promised land. They, they, they were not yet in the promised land, but, yet, but soon they would be. And if you read Numbers chapter 21, you will see that whenever the Israelites trusted the Lord, God helped them conquer. God took care of them. Whenever they trusted the Lord in these battles, God was watching over them. And then we get to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. And there's a man named Balak. Balak. And he's in an area named Moab. And Balak is a local king of Moab. He's just a local king, just a local dictator, a local king over Moab. Nobody special internationally, but a local king. Well, Balak had learned about Israel conquering all these lands. Balak had heard the news. And Balak was getting a little bit frightened. If Israel's going to conquer this land, what's going to happen to Moab? What's going to happen to my people? Isn't that awesome, by the way? 
the word of the Lord was spreading about his people conquering the lands. And the other people groups got a little worried, got a little terrified, got a little scared. So what does Balak do? Balak contacts a pagan prophet named Balaam. And he asks him to curse the Israelites. Balaam is internationally famous as a pagan prophet. So you need to learn and remember these two names. Balak, local pagan king. Balaam, local pagan prophet. So Balaam asks God if he can do it. Balaam goes to God and he asks, can I curse your people? Now that's just kind of stupid, isn't it? <laughs> well, what we need to know is Balaam likely really did not go to the Israelite God. Balaam likely did not really go to Yahweh, the one true God. Balaam likely went to his, his gods, his pagan gods, and asked them if he could, if he could curse the Israelites. <clears throat> but what's interesting is the one true God answered. The one true God answered. I, I sincerely believe that in most cases, God would have ignored Balaam. But since this had to do with Israel, God responded. Isn't that awesome? God is looking out for his people, so the Lord responds to Balaam. God says, you cannot curse them for they are blessed. You cannot curse people who are blessed. Anybody know Genesis 12, 1 through 3? In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God tells Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. And now God proves that. He's watching over the Israelites. So Balaam sends these messengers back to Moab. There to tell Balak, I can't curse them. Balak, Balaam said, no, I cannot curse the Israelites. But the messengers did not tell Balak why. The messengers did not tell Balak why. So Balak, the local king, sends the messengers back to Balaam to ask him again. The messengers come back and Balaam again asks the Lord about this again. This time the Lord says this. The Lord says, all right, all right, you can go, but only speak what I tell you. And this is because in Numbers chapters 23 and 24, every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, it came out as blessings. God forced him to be obedient. God takes care of his people. By the way, it's easy to read this passage and think that Balaam was a good, obedient man, but he wasn't. Balaam did not want to bless Israel. Balaam wanted to curse Israel. God forced this pagan prophet to bless Israel. Balaam wanted to, to curse them for selfish gain. 2 Peter 2.15 talks of Balaam as selfish. That's in the New Testament. Revelation does as well. Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 talks negatively of Balaam. In Numbers 31.16, Balaam is accused of giving bad advice to the Israelites which led them into adultery. In Numbers 31.8, Balaam is killed. So in Numbers 22.28, um, the Lord talks through a donkey to get through to Balaam. Isn't that interesting, by the way? Again, if the Lord can work through a donkey, he can work through you and me. Never neglect that. He talked through a donkey. So that gets us to Numbers chapter 23. In Numbers 23, uh, that's where Balaam begins to bless Israel. Here is this pagan prophet, pagan sorcerer, blessing Israel. And that is powerful. So let's look at the prophecy of the Messiah, but I'm going to continue setting the table. Numbers 24, 17 is the actual messianic prophecy. 
But let's continue with the context. The context of Numbers 24, 17 is Balaam, as found in Numbers 22, which I've already written, uh, talked about. In Numbers chapter 23 and 24, Balaam blesses Israel three times. Every time he tries to curse Israel, it comes out as a blessing. Starting in Numbers 24, 15, we have Balaam's final, his fourth oracle, which is our passage. In Numbers 24, verse 1, is continuing this third blessing of Israel. Beginning in Numbers 23, 25, Balak, this local king of Moab, asked Balaam to curse Israel again. He's been asking him to curse Israel, but can only bless them. The ESV Study Bible summarizes this well. The ESV Study Bible says, Balaam's second blessing responds to Balak's complaint that Balaam should have cursed, not blessed the people. Balaam observes that God does not change his mind. That's an awesome principle here, by the way. When you study the Bible, you always want to look for principles. Here is a principle of truth, a principle of theology. God does not change his mind. Since God does not change his mind, the blessing already pronounced cannot be turned into a curse. Balaam has already blessed the people. God has already blessed the people. It cannot be turned into a curse. So the nation will be free from disaster. In Numbers 23, 26, Balaam says that he has to do what the Lord tells him to. In verse 27, this is Numbers 23, we have Balak, again, this local king of Moab, taking him to a high place, thinking that will make him curse Israel. So Balaam is taken to a high place. He's asked to look down and see all of Israel camped tribe by tribe, thinking this will make him curse Israel. Balak is so scared of Israel going in and conquering the land that Balak is doing whatever he can to get Balaam to curse Israel. Then in verses 28 through 30, Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. Balaam then asked for seven altars, and they made sacrifices. And this brings us to chapter 24. If you're in your Bibles, look at Numbers 24, verses 1 through 2. Numbers 24, 1 through 2. It's an awesome, these are just awesome verses getting into this passage. In Numbers 24, 1 through 2, it says, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And look at verse 2. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon this pagan prophet, this pagan sorcerer. This is now specifically Balaam's third oracle. And now he knew that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So he did not seek the other omens. It's a telling passage. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. It's awesome. He saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. Imagine a picture. Imagine a picture. Balaam is up on this high place, this high hill or low mountain. He's looking out on the wilderness. He sees all of Israel camping tribe by tribe. And instead of cursing Israel, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And he begins another blessing on Israel. Another blessing on Israel. Verse 3, he takes up his oracle or discourse. He tells who the oracle is from. Verse 4 says, The oracle is of him who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty. This oracle is from the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of heaven's armies. This oracle is from the one true God. This, this is Almighty God working through a pagan non believer sorcerer. 
I thought of something I heard a long time ago. There's a spy in the sky watching over Israel and watching over God's people. It is the Lord Almighty. And right here we see that the Lord Almighty is watching over Israel, watching over his people. Verses 5 through 7 are about how great their locations are. Then in verse 7, he talks about how high their kings will be. Israel's kingdom will be exalted. This is prophetic. This is about Israel's future. Verse 8 is about the Lord leading them to military victories. Verse 9 includes the same idea as Genesis 12, 3 in the covenant with Abraham. In verses 10 through 13, it includes Balak's anger. Balak is angry because he wanted Balaam to curse Israel. And now three times he has blessed them. In verses 12 through 13, Balak sends him home. It's really awesome. (laughs) Balak, this local king, tells Balaam, if you're going to be that way, just go home. I'm done with your curses. They become blessings. Just go home. But Balaam, before he goes home, blesses Israel more. He continues blessing Israel. And it continues to be prophetic, including a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah. That brings us to verse 17. Numbers 24, 17. I see him. That's Jesus. I see Jesus, the king, the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. Jacob means Israel. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. Moab is that local country. And tear down all the sons of Sheth. A star. This is a symbol of kingship. A symbol of kingship. A scepter. That's a symbol of royalty. Genesis 49.10 says this. Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter. That's, that's the kingship. The royalty will not depart from Judah. It's amazing. This star, this scepter will lead Israel. They will defeat their enemies. By the way, Genesis 49.10 is another prophecy of the Messiah. That's 400 years before this. And this is 1,400 years before Jesus. Verses 18 through 19 are more about the Messiah reigning, defeating enemies. Verses 20 and following are prophetic about the other nations. This is all about Israel being the ruling kingdom. This is all about Israel having a mighty king. I like what the New American Commentary says. It says, one of the most remarkable, remarkable prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, interpreted for centuries before the Christian era, as portending and heralding the great messianic king and kingdom, here is uttered by a pagan divination expert. Centuries before Jesus... They looked at this as a messianic prophecy. Centuries before Jesus, they knew this was talking about the Savior, about the Messiah, about the anointed king. Yet this is brought on by a pagan divination expert. Somebody wrote, his name is Alan. Alan remarked that this prophecy should come from one who was unworthy, makes a prophecy all the more dramatic and startling. The book of Balaam, these chapters about Balaam, presents an amazing picture of God and his sovereign desire to bless his people Israel. God will utilize whatever means he chooses to reveal himself and his will for his people, even if it means divinely drafting for service one who would seem the ultimate antithesis of what the world would envision for the leader and spokesman. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. This is a simple yet profound prophecy about the Messiah. Let's look at some applications here. God uses this pagan king to prophesy the Messiah. Do we trust that God can use everyone and anyone 
God can use you. God can use me. God can use anyone. We must not limit God. God can work in any way he chooses. I like what I heard one particular person, Ray Ortland Jr., once say, do not insult God with little prayers. God can save the Supreme Court. God can save the Congress. God can save your neighbor. God can save that prodigal. God can do anything. Do not insult him with little prayers. We must have more confidence in our faith looking at passages like this written 1,400 years before Jesus, prophetic about Jesus. We must have more confidence in God's word. We must have more trust in the Messiah, recognizing God's preordained plan. Balaam did what the Lord told him to, even though reluctantly. Are we obeying God in our own life? Balaam did what the Lord told him regardless of money. Even though he was a pagan man, he was not going to let money sway him. Do we let money sway us? And this is a really awesome prophecy. I mean, a really awesome application. All this was going on behind the scenes. Israel had no idea. The people of Israel had no idea that this pagan king wanted to curse them. Behind the scenes, that was going on. They were going about day-to-day business like normal. Grumbling, complaining against Moses, whatever. They were going about day-to-day business as normal, but God was watching over them. Isn't that awesome? God is watching over them behind the scenes. God is sovereign. God is in control. I began this message talking about doubt. It always encourages my faith to see how the Bible fits together. As I've stated, this passage was written 1,400 years before Jesus. About, 14, about 1,400 years before Jesus. And this passage references Genesis 49.10, which was written another 400 years before that. So we have prophecies that are 1,400 and 1,800 years before Jesus, fulfilled in the Messiah, fulfilled in Jesus. It's amazing. In his book, Stories for the Journey, William R. White shares the story of Hans. Hans. He's a European, a European seminary professor devastated by the death of his wife. He, his wife's name was Enid, and Enid uh, died and just devastated Hans. Hans was so overcome with sorrow that he lost his appetite he didn't want to leave the house. Out of concern, the seminary president, along with three other professors, paid Hans a visit. The grieving professor confessed that he was struggling with doubt. He said, I'm no longer able to pray to God. He admitted to his colleagues, I'm no longer able to pray. In fact, he says, I'm not certain I believe in God anymore. After a moment of silence... The seminary president said, then we will believe for you. We will believe for you. And he said, we will pray for you. The four men, the seminary president, the three other professors, those four men continued to meet daily for prayer, asking God to restore the gift of faith to their friend. Some months later, as the four friends gathered for prayer with Hans, Hans smiled and said, It is no longer necessary for you to pray for me. Today, I would like you to pray with me. They came together, as Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, the cord of three strands is not easily broken. They came together with that seminary professor, and they prayed together with him and for him. And that encouraged and uplifted his faith, encouraged and uplifted his doubt. They didn't give up on him. And we must not give up on each other either. Sometimes we have doubts. I hope these prophecies and their fulfillment... Encourage your faith as they do mine. Let's pray together. Dear Father, right now I thank you for this 
Bible passage on Balaam, Balak. Lord God, I thank you that we see that you can use anyone. And right here, you use this pagan sorcerer to bless Israel. Lord God, I thank you that you watched over Israel. For Jesus, we know that you came through their descendants. Dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. Lord God, help us trusting in you as Lord and Savior. Lord God, help us growing in our faith in you. Lord God, I pray that right now is not the last time this congregation eats this week. Spiritually eats. Lord God, compel us and convict us to spend time with you daily and to pray without ceasing this week. Convict us to repentance when we fail you. Get through our pride and teach us humility. Teach us humility, Lord. If there's anyone here who has not surrendered to you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day of confessing they are a sinner in need of a Savior, believing in you as the only Savior, trusting in you and committing to you. May today be the day to firmly make the decision to be with you in order to become like you and to learn and do all that you say and then arrange their affairs around you. Lord God, I pray that you would help us all. Help us all arranging our affairs around you, making you Lord of our lives, following you. Encourage and strengthen our faith and help us all as a community of Christians to encourage and strengthen each other's faith, to build each other up, to pray for one another, to pray spiritual prayers for one another, that we'd be spiritually built up. Lord, don't let us insult you with little prayers. You are God Almighty. You are God Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no threat. There is no one who, who, who is even close to you. Not even close. In Jesus' name, amen. If anything has stirred your heart during this service, the, during this closing song, the altars are always open. You're always welcome to come forward and pray at these altars. If you'd like to stand with us, 10 number 462.